Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Have questions about the healthcare industry? Welcome to 19 Conversations. Today, we're asking David Jeffries, Senior Vice President for Global Regulatory Healthcare Policy and Corporate Affairs, ISAID Europe and Chair of the FPA Alzheimer's Disease Platform, and Philip Sheltons, Professor of Neurology and Director of the Alzheimer Centre in Amsterdam, can we expect a cure for Alzheimer's soon? I'm Jackie Davis. Thank you for joining the conversation. Good morning, gentlemen. Great to have you with us. Uh, David, could I start with you? Um, and it's a very fundamental question. The question in the title, can we expect a cure for Alzheimer's soon? You've been working on this, you as industry and as academics have been working on this issue for 30 years. And we still only have some treatments that can alleviate symptoms. We don't have a cure. Why is it proving so difficult? Well, thank you, Jackie. I mean, a great question there. First of all, actually, it's been quite difficult even developing medicines to treat symptoms here. I think we have to recognise that this is a very complex area. We're still discovering more about the pathophysiology. It's not quite as simple as when we have a receptor, which we can we talk about having a druggable target. There isn't one receptor here. There are complex mechanisms, and that's why it is difficult to undertake this research. I think we've also had to recognise that we've had several false starts in the sense that we've had some drugs which have proved not to be safe. We've had other drugs where we've not shown effectiveness. So this is a very difficult area. I think the main message is that we are now much closer. Indeed, every time there's a failure, actually, we build on that. We learn more about this disease. We learn more about the discovery. What we're working on at the present moment is what we would call the second generation products. These are not cures, but they are able to modify the disease to slow the rate of progression. And yes, we are also working on the third generation of products, which take us much closer to intervening at the very early stages. So main message is great complexity here, but we're trying to unravel all that. So we'll come back on those second and third generation uh, products that you are working on. But Philip, uh, from your perspective as well, I think the public uh, may think uh, we've seen during COVID-19 just how fast uh, the pharmaceutical industry researchers can respond uh, in a pandemic. And the public may be therefore saying, well, surely we can move faster on Alzheimer's. Uh, would you echo what David has said about what is holding us back? I would certainly uh, echo what David said, uh, Jackie, uh, but people have to realize, first of all, the 30 years is not that long. I mean, in oncology, we have been working for more than 75 years already. Second, the brain is much more complex than anything else, and surely a virus, which is very simple to tackle, and the brain is very, very complex, has a blood-brain barrier that actually prohibits any medication to enter the brain almost. And third, it took us a long time before we actually could diagnose uh, Alzheimer's in uh, during a period in life where symptoms were not that uh, abundant. So to tackle the disease very early on, we have now the proper biomarkers. So we're only now, 2020, in a good position to start the research uh, soon. So I'm very hopeful, positive, that in the next 10 years, we see a lot of uh, new uh, drugs on the market. Thank you. We'll come back to that time frame a bit later. But can I just clarify one thing, uh, which to the layman might be puzzling? You talk about disease-modifying therapies. Um, Philip, can you explain exactly what we mean by this? And are they effectively cures? Can we look at them and say, uh, this amounts to a cure, it has the same for the patient, it would have the same effect, or do they fall a long way short of that? 
No. So disease modification uh, is a bit opposite to what we used to call symptomatic uh, medication. So symptomatic relief, which is targeted to symptoms like memory loss, agitation, depression. Uh, disease modification means that you try to modify the disease by by tackling the underlying pathology. So tackling the, the amyloid problem, tackling the tau problem, tackling the synaptic problem is what is called disease modification. And to really be on the positive side, I mean, we are able to do that. I mean, we're now able to diagnose the disease properly using biomarkers, but medications that are now underway uh, from, from the aducanumab story, the, the Bantu 401 story, and several other stories, they really show that it is possible to modify the underlying pathology. So we are on the way to do that. And that's very, very important. We also need better therapies for symptoms, but that's, that's almost a different uh, game and probably also different targets. Thank you. And David, if we succeed, if you succeed in terms of those uh, disease modifying therapies, would the impact be significant enough that for a patient to all intents and purposes, it would feel like a cure? Obviously, we're a little bit careful, as Philippa said, around the word cure. What we're talking about here are drugs which will slow the rate of progression. Clearly, we'll have to gain further evidence to see how effective those are over a long period of treating people suffering from Alzheimer's disease. So I think that we've certainly we will look to be shifting the curve further, if I can put it those ways, so that the these drugs can be used much earlier to give a much longer period of disease-free or slow the rate of progression. I'm not sure that is quite a cure, but as I said earlier, we are looking at the third generation products, which may be much closer to that. So I think we're moving forward, but let's at this stage refer to them as disease modifying. They are slowing the rate of progression and the earlier we intervene, the better. And of course, we need to intervene in other ways as well in terms of diet, in terms of promoting better brain health. It's not just the drugs themselves, it's part of a whole package of interventions. Thank you very much. Uh, and in terms of the time frame, you said we are much closer. Uh, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but David, what are we talking about in terms of the second generation uh, products and treatments? Um, how far away do you now think we are from some really significant developments here? Well, I think, again, we've always got to be cautious on this, but it is in the public domain that one drug has been filed with the Food and Drug Administration and similarly filed with the European Medicines Agency. So obviously the regulators have to go through all their due processes, but we are close. Close, Philip. He's not uh, uh, not pinning himself down too specifically. Uh, for you, uh, the time frame for all of this, how optimistic, both in terms of second generation and then looking longer term, third generation. Yeah. You talked about the next decade being yeah. a time when we'd see a lot of products. Can we be a bit more specific? Well, I think that's already quite specific. I mean, it's always very dangerous to uh, to uh, to mention any time frames because it could be early, it could be later. I mean, you you never know exactly, and and you need to do this by trial and error, of course, as David also said. So, but I think we are in a much better position than we were a couple of years ago because we we understand the disease, underlying pathology better. We have better biomarkers. We are including better type of patients. We are moving into patients that are in an earlier phase of the disease. Uh, so I do think that we are in a much better position so 10 years is is for drug development is not even that a long time but i think within 10 years we we will have a few of them uh, probably on the market or at least close to the market um and i think that's all one point that david also mentioned is it is 
And another way is also that the message to the people is that we are interfering much earlier in the disease. So the people that need to be treated in the future are those who have the very early disease and they may not even have symptoms. So that also creates the unmet need for those who have symptoms and are in, in a further stage of disease. So we also have to keep an eye on drug development for that part of the disease. So um, not to belinger too much on it, but to make the comparison again with oncology and also with COVID, what is, stands out there is funding, funding, funding. I mean, if you put money into it, you will get results. And if you compare the amount of funding that went into oncology, HIV, cardiovascular disease, and now in COVID compared to Alzheimer's, it's really, really dramatically uh, a dramatic difference. So um, we have a saying in, in Holland that if you, so if every penny you put into it, you will get a result. So we have to put more money into it. That's the ultimate sort of solution always, especially since Alzheimer's won't disappear like COVID will, we have to put all emphasis and all our resources into development for better drugs and Alzheimer's disease. And that leads, David, uh, very naturally to my next question to you, which is about whether our healthcare systems are ready. If you do succeed, uh, and both of you are optimistic now that we really are uh, making huge progress, and as Philip just said, over the next decade, uh, we will see some, some really significant developments. Are healthcare systems ready? FBA produced a report recently saying that if a disease-modifying therapy came to market in 2021, it argued healthcare systems are not ready. In what way are they not ready? What is the concern? And what do we need to do to address it? Well, I think you're right. The concerns here are around the diagnostic facilities, how we diagnose patients, and then how we have the infrastructure for monitoring the progress of those patients receiving the drugs. There are also issues around the administration, because remember, these drugs will have to be given, we call them parenterally, by injection, by infusion. And that does mean extra skills to be available. Although that said, I think what we've seen with home treatments as a result of the COVID pandemic, we've actually seen quite a lot of movement on that. So I think that's been one of the upsides from the terrible pandemic. But yes, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here, putting the infrastructure in place in terms of dementia hubs, in terms of the diagnostics, and then the monitoring. Mm. Uh, so, so Philip, from your point of view, these challenges in terms of moving from approval into widespread clinical use, I mean, generally, this is a discussion uh, within healthcare systems about yeah. how ready they are to take up innovations yeah. in any area yeah. of, of medicine. But in this particular area, what do you see as the key challenge? Well, I think that's absolutely true. I think some countries may be more prepared than others, but in general, uh, they are unprepared for such a difference in treating uh, a disease like Alzheimer's. So first of all, uh, people, everybody from the GP to the specialist have to realize, so this is a real disease that we tackle like we do any other disease. And there are therapies now that are given by infusion and you have to monitor these patients by MRI, etc. So if we do this on a large scale, the healthcare systems will just collapse. So we have to do this very gently and diligently, and we have to start with small groups, with expert centers, and gradually expand on that. Uh, because if you would just put it on the market like this and let everybody use it, it will not work. And it will actually backfire to the industry as well, because then people will realize that this just isn't workable. But presumably we shouldn't wait for these therapies to be no. ready to come to market. No. That work Correct. needs to be done now. No. Exactly, exactly. So I'm talking to my government and say, well, wait until a couple of, of some months or years from now, there will be something that will be approved by the EMA. You have to get ready now. 
And that's what I try to persuade our government and every other government should do and now try to prepare now for the things that are coming. Because if the first drug won't be registered or approved, the second one will. Uh, so it will come. And there will be a time that we are treating our patients differently. And, and David, in terms of, of who needs to do what, uh, Philip, they're talking about the message he has for governments uh, and that he's trying to deliver to them all the time. Um, how important in this area is collaboration and partnership between uh, yourselves uh, as industry, governments, with academics and people uh, in the front line, healthcare professionals? Um, how do you see that partnership working and how important is it that it's not just disparate efforts you doing your bit Philip doing his bit and governments uh, doing theirs how do you come together effectively on this well I think you're right this is a call to action I think back in 2017 the WHO called on the need for each country to have a strategy now that'll be different per country but that is what's necessary I think recently Alzheimer's Europe Alzheimer's Disease International have both highlighted in reports that that recommendation hasn't been carried forward. Member states do need to have strategies. That does involve capital expenditure, it involves infrastructure, but it also involves training, it involves retraining, because it would require many more skilled people to take part in this. So yes, it is collaboration, it's bringing many partners together to move forward. And this, I think, isn't just about being prepared for the new drugs, but it's also having more infrastructure to promote better brain health, and so on and so forth. So it is part of what we might even call an ecosystem moving forward. And as you, as David indicated, yeah. Philip, he was also talking earlier about diet, other issues, yeah. brain health, and so on. So this holistic approach, which is yeah. easy to talk about, but not so easy to do in practice. No, no that's absolutely true. And I'm glad that David brought it up as, as a, a representative of the pharmaceutical industry, because it's something that has to be done in parallel. Um, so and, and people are waking up to the idea that what's good is for your heart is good for your brain and uh, there are initiatives like the Think Brain Health initiative and the Oxford Policy Reporter was written on it and I'm a member of that group uh, I think uh, here again a uh, call to action for governments but also to physicians to uh, promote a healthy lifestyle in order to perhaps delay the onset of dementia syndromes in general that has to go in parallel with therapies like that we were just uh, discussing and I think uh, um, there a lot of work needs to be done also on the side of research because none of all these interventions have proven to be efficacious. I mean, we think it is all good for your brain, but you don't know exactly. So uh, what kind of diet, uh, how much uh, sort of exercise do you really need to do, especially if people already exercise and for what kind of people? So it all needs to become more personalized. Um, and just before we close, I was quite struck uh, by what you said earlier about funding. Philip, you said funding, yeah. funding, funding, and you yes. drew a comparison with other diseases. Now, yes. I mean, it seems to me and it strikes me that if you look at uh, coverage in newspapers and in the media and so on of Alzheimer's, uh, yes. there is a lot of coverage. There is a yes. lot of fear among the general population that it could happen sure. to them. And yet, from what you're suggesting, less allocation of resource to this issue. Why do you think that is? And, and why is it so important from your perspective uh, that we act on this now? 
Well, it's it's well, we have to because the time is ticking and the, the clock is sort of oh, it's five to twelve, as we say. I mean, if we don't invest now, there will be a healthcare crisis anyway by a huge amount of new patients, and the healthcare system just can't take care of that. I mean, we need people to take care of people with dementia. The the big difference between people with dementia and people with oncology or any other condition is that people become uh, sort of dependent on others. So it is a costly disease by itself, and you have to invest in research starting from academia and biotech industry and then big pharma to the whole chain is to invest invest in invest in getting new drugs better drugs so speeding up the process to get them to the market uh, and that is possible as we see with covid uh, it is all a matter of uh, attention and putting your money where the attention needs to go and that hasn't happened if you look at the budgets for nih are very open on it on oncology and hiv for instance it's roughly 20 times higher than there is in expenditure in Alzheimer's disease. The amount of researchers working in this field is much, much smaller than it is in oncology and other fields. So it is a question of, of mass. It's a question of funding. And that needs to change. And I see it changing now. I see countries like the UK, like Germany, like the Lenders. Things are changing, but it still is not up to the mark where oncology is. And David, given the devastating impact uh, that this disease has on patients, on their families, on carers. Um, why do you think it is? Industry's been working on this, is committed to finding solutions, and you've both uh, indicated your optimism that, that you're making really significant progress now, but yet this lack of attention uh, at government level, uh, this lack of more public funding. Uh, why do you think it is? And, and what would you say to, to policymakers uh, to convince them that they really do need to do more uh, in this area? Well, I think it's always very difficult for people in policy because there are just so many demands on the healthcare systems. But I think this has shown that now is the right time. Perhaps it's a little bit late, but it's never too late. I think my main message would be what my old mother used to say to me is don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. I think we now are at that point. I think since even we issued our report from FPIA, we've now seen as a result of the COVID pandemic, the EU for Health programme, the initiatives. So I think health is very much more to the fore. And if we look at it, public health is now very much more to the centre than it was nine months ago. So I think that everything has had a wake-up call in health. So I'm optimistic. I think governments are responding. I think they will respond and recognise, as you say, this is a terrible condition. And we now are at the time where we need to come together and move forward. So I'm optimistic that this will happen. So a great moment of opportunity. Uh, yes. We just need to seize it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. And thank you to you for listening to 19 Conversations. If you like this podcast, please click on the subscribe button to be the first to know when we release our next episode. And please leave a rating and review. And until our next episode, we'd invite you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag questions inspire solutions. Goodbye. Goodbye.